Welcome, dear listener, to another episode of True Hauntings and Scary Stories, the podcast where we alternate between spooky conversation and scary short stories. (laughs) Now, here's your host, Miss Cynthia C. Welcome, spooky friends, to True Hauntings and Scary Stories. Our spooky, spooky friends. Halloween's over. I know, but wasn't my costume awesome? (laughs) It totally was. Wasn't mine? I loved it. It was so great. (laughs) Listen, though, you guys don't go anywhere because I keep up the spooky all year long. Cat too. Like we are spooky people. So you keep tuning in because we're going to have spooky stories still going on. And I always try to do a spooky Christmas themed story around Christmas time. So there's that. Krampus. Yeah. Well, that's the one, the episode we're going to do. But I always, the story that's closest to Christmas, I always make it something weird. Last year it was like a Santa figurine. (laughs) yeah he was moving all around the kids were like what the shit bro yeah so i know it's november and i'm still well okay i've since changed and washed them so let me preface that but i'm still rocking my frankenstein leggings so nice the spookiness never ends plus after halloween again comes you know thanksgiving and christmas more reasons to watch The Nightmare Before Christmas, right? Yes, girl. That is both my Halloween movie and my Christmas movie every year. That's and my it. July movie and my August movie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I just watched it the other day. <laughs> Sometimes I'll just put it on and play it in the background while I'm working because I, I do chat support, right? So I'm just I'm just working and, and singing along to what's this? What's this? <laughs> in this town we call home okay i don't know how much i can sing before i get in trouble for copyright so (laughs) (laughs) i better stop (laughs) i know i know so today in order to keep up the spookiness wait wait i'm i'm getting a vision (laughs) of what we're going to talk about today cat are you psychic i could be there might be some detectives who need your help. Because that's what we're talking about today, right? Yes, ma'am. We are talking about murders that were supposedly solved by psychics. Supposedly being bold and underlined mm-hmm. after this amount of research that I've done. And not sidekicks. We're not talking about, you know, Robin. We're talking about psychics. Crystal ball, third eye, visions psychics yeah and i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest i am pretty skeptical when it comes to this particular subject but there were so many when i searched it there were so many that came up where people honestly believe that a psychic like they actually pointed them to evidence or pointed them to bodies and stuff things they couldn't have possibly known so i'm a little shook I'm I'm skeptical on it too. Like you, I found I found a lot of 
I will say snippets of instances where psychics may have assisted and, and helped solve these murders. But I will tell and, and you, you can tell me this after you hear my stories and our listeners tell us what you think, either by our email address, Cynthia at truehauntings.com, or if you're not already there, join us on our Facebook group. The link is always in the show notes because Cindy is on top of her links. <laughs> I do the things. And of course, if you visit truehauntings.com, that will get you anywhere you want to go, including our Twitter, Instagram, patrons, all the things. Etsy but store, I think. Etsy stores, yep, yeah. we got we got spooky oh, stuff. Oh, I got a new merchandise store. I haven't <gasps> even told did. anybody about it. Guys, I have a merch store now. I'll put that link in the show notes too. It's through Bonfire. So that's the link that it'll be, but it's just called True Hauntings. But yeah, and it's got really goofy, fun stuff in it. I actually have the canvas bag. I ordered it and I have it. I'm using it as my purse. <laughs> so I have seen some of this and I really want one of the hoodies. So next yeah. next paycheck, I think I'm going to get one of the hoodies because yeah. I'm on board with that. You guys, tell us what you think of these stories, and if you're still skeptical on psychics solving murders, or if they actually did anything, or you're like, I am on board with that, they are all-knowing. My grandmother's cousin's uncle was a psychic, and he's a... Let us know what you think. Yeah, and you know what? If you have solved a murder with your psychic powers, we need to know about that. We need to know. We need to know. Tell me, baby girl, because I need to know. (laughs) Oh, God. Nice. (laughs) So, um, I guess I'll I'll just go first. It's that kind of Friday, guys. Hang with us. (laughs) Yeah. Hang in there. It's going to be a wild ride. (laughs) So, I'll go first. I actually found one that is in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I am. So I thought, wow, well, you had to dig real far for that one, didn't you? <laughs> right? Good job. Thanks. So great. So this one is a very sad story about Ashley Howley in Columbus, Ohio. She was 20 years old when she disappeared. And what happened was on the, in the early hours of June 16th, 2004, Ashley, for whatever reason, was arguing Um, with her ex-boyfriend and he was assaulting her. So she actually called 911 in the early morning hours, I think three or four in the morning on June 16th, 2004. And she reported that he was assaulting her. They sent police. He had left, whatever. She filed a a police report against him for assaulting her. Um, Nothing really came of that at the time. So then later that day, she made plans to go to her best friend's house, you know, because to get away from the ex or whatever, hide from him, something to that effect. So she made plans to go to her best friend's house, but she never showed up. She never made it. That was on June 16, 2004. So I don't understand why I could not figure it out. But for whatever reason, a month later, her mother filed a missing persons report. Good Lord. A month. Wait, how old was she? 20. Was she in college? No, no. She was a professional dancer. 
And uh, that is the theory that maybe it wasn't reported like it should have been because of her profession. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, a month, a month later is when her mom filed a missing persons report. So at that point, they start looking at her, looking for her. Now, that same time period, like within that same days, couple days, they found her car abandoned in a parking lot. You know, basically like the same day or the next day, like right when they got the missing persons report, they started looking for her and that's when they found her car. So her car was assumedly sitting in that parking lot for a month and nobody said anything about that either. Mm -hmm. Like these people failed this poor girl bad. So the cops had no evidence that the boyfriend had injured her or killed her or anything, even though they had that 911 call. They still couldn't arrest him. They said that they didn't have enough evidence and they didn't, they didn't arrest him. Mm -hmm. So then it goes cold for a while. And then this lady who is a psychic and has already been working with police to on uh, missing persons reports and stuff. Her name's Christy Robinette. She doesn't know anything about this report. She lives in Michigan. Okay. She, wakes up one night to this ghost woman pulling her out of her bed and telling her that she's been murdered and she wants her murderer to to be held responsible. And so she pulls Christy out of bed to wake her up and she tells her, I've been murdered. You got to help me find the person or whatever. Whoa. Yeah. So this is one year after the disappearance that this happens. whole year. Christy's theory is that the ghost of Ashley had to figure out how to reach out to someone to get her message out. That's what Christy said anyway. According to Christy, she had not even heard of this case before. It wasn't very publicized. Again, the theory is because she was a stripper. um, It didn't get covered much in the news. Oh, you said professional dancer. Yeah, well, I was trying to be nice about it. <laughs> okay, well, if you're going to be nice about it, then you say exotic dancer. Oh, okay, okay. Professional dancer makes me think that she was literally a professional dancer, like she was part of a ballet company or something Well, like she that. was professional, and she was dancing. There was just a pole involved. She was dancing <laughs> exotically. Yes. <laughs> anyway... The theory is that it didn't get much coverage because of that. Mm -hmm. So a year later, Christy has this weird ghost encounter in her bed. She doesn't know anything about the case. So she starts Googling, searching like details from this ghost girl. So she's she's like Googling things like blonde haired murder victim in, you know, Ohio or what? I don't know, whatever details that she got from the ghost, she started Googling those. And eventually she stumbled upon a picture of Ashley and she recognized her. She was like, oh my gosh, that's the ghost. That's the girl that woke me up. So then she contacts the authorities that were, you know, dealing with that case. And they would not refer her to the family until she confirmed what Ashley was wearing the day that she disappeared. And she did. She was able to describe the clothes that the ghost was wearing, and it matched the clothes that Ashley went missing in. 
How do they know? Well, see, this is the problem with with lack of of internet information, right? If her mom didn't report her missing until a month later, how do they know the clothes that she was wearing when she went missing? My guess, if I had to guess, this is only me spitballing. Um, she probably worked at a place that had video surveillance. So maybe the police went back and found the last footage that she was in. Because she did work that night. She came home from work late and the ex was waiting for her. And that's why they argued and he beat her up or whatever. So that's my only Could theory. be. Or, or two, there may have been a, a detailed report um, if the cops actually came out when they got oh, the call yeah. about the domestic dispute. Sometimes they'll include yeah. descriptions in there, too. So Or body camera footage. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, they... There are a few ways they could have known it. But um, she is recorded as saying that all the time she's worked with the police to help find missing people, she's always been contacted by the families. But this is the only time in her career that she was contacted by the ghost. Oh, boy. (laughs) So I thought that was interesting. So she gets in touch with the family. And for the next year or two, for a while, she says Ashley keeps revisiting her and telling her more details about her murder. But it's as if Ashley didn't actually know where her body was. She could just see the surroundings. So she would describe the area to Christy. And then Christy would relay that to family and they would try to figure it out that way. So this went on for another year or two. Oh, and she does describe Ashley's spirit as a vengeful one. So basically, she said Ashley was pissed off. (laughs) That's usually how spirits are created. Yeah. So um, Christy and the family of Ashley, they went to the location that Ashley's ghost described. Okay. Christy said that's where her body was. But the cops were not able to dig there that day because it was private property. They had to go and get the proper, you know, documentation or whatever. Mm. So um, they never dug there and looked. So that was, she went missing in 2004. So in 2008, her ex-boyfriend was charged with the murder of his own mom and her boyfriend or his stepdad. I'm not sure which it was. In one, I heard boyfriend. In another, I heard stepfather. So one of those. So he actually murdered his mom and her man, but he got caught on that one. They were found dead in their home. And so he went to jail. So when he was in jail, they also charged him in connection with Ashley's disappearance, but they didn't have a body yet. So it was lesser charges, I assume. So then they finally found Ashley in April of 2008, and she was concealed in cement on the property near the spot where Christy had brought them in the first place. Wow. Like very, very close by. And she was identified with her dental records. Oh. You know, because she'd been under cement for a while, so four years. The decomposition, yeah. Yeah. Robert McMichael is his name. I think it's Robert McMichael II or something like that. He is actually in jail, in prison, serving uh, 
life sentence without parole, charged with three murders, and he was convicted. So he did get that. And Christy helps other people with cases. She still does it, and she never, ever charges. She does all the casework for free. She does have a business being a psychic, and, you know, I assume she has an online presence and all that. But whenever she does work with detectives, she does not charge. It's all free. That's cool. So she did take them to the spot where Christy, where um, Ashley ended up being found. You always, I always wonder when hearing about psychics helping solve murders and how they know all these specific details and stuff, if the cops ever like suspect the psychic of doing it because of how much details they have. I can't believe you said that. Just wait until I tell you my second story. <laughs> <laughs> you spoiled it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, what you got for us? All right, so we are gonna ta- we are gonna hop across the pond, so as mm-hmm. as they say, and we're gonna go over to Britain. This one is is a little bit sad because it does involve children. So, mm. listener discretion advised. Trigger warning. Yep. At eleven forty five a.m. on Sunday, August fourth, two thousand two. Jessica Chapman left her home in Brook Street, Soham, to attend a barbecue at her best friend's house, Holly Wells. Upon arrival, Jessica and Holly played together in Holly's room with her friends. Later, the friends left and Jessica and Holly uh, ate food with the rest of the family and the other guests of the barbecue. Both the girls were 10 years old. I believe, 10 or 11, if I remember correctly. They were very young. So mm-hmm. I think it was 10. Yeah. Now, at eight fi- at 6.15, the girls left the house without telling anyone to go buy sweets from a local store, which was right around the corner that they'd been to many times. And at 6.46, Jessica's phone was turned off. At mm-hmm. 8 p.m. that same night, Holly's mother... So the where the house that the girls were at, Holly's mother went into her daughter's bedroom to invite the girls to say goodbye to their house guests, only to discover both girls were gone. Holly's mother phoned Jessica's house to see if the girls maybe wandered over there because it was within walking distance. When Jessica's mother confirmed that the girls were not at her house either, Both sets of parents became frantic and ended up reporting the girls missing to local police by 9.55 p.m. Police immediately launched an intensive search and over 400 officers and volunteers were assigned full time to search for the girls. They went door to door in the neighborhood, surrounding areas, asking if anyone had seen or heard anything at all related to the girls' disappearance. A photo was released to the media that was taken just a few hours before the girls' disappearance, showing what they looked like and that at the time of their disappearance, they were both wearing matching football jerseys, which in the U.S. is soccer. Mm-hmm. and gave a physical description of each of the girls. On August 8th, so four days after the girls had gone missing, CCTV footage of the girls was recorded and released. The timestamp on it was just 
minutes before their disappearance. Um, it was released to the public and it showed the girls arriving at that store just around the corner and they bought their candy at 6.28 p.m. And then it, it showed the footage of the girls leaving the store. After the footage was released, both of the girls' parents gave interviews and pleaded for the safe return of their daughters. This would bring in over 2,000 phone calls and tips from the public. So mm. people were really concerned about these poor little girls that had just yeah. vanished. It was very, very sad. And they were very concerned. They, um, I love seeing that there was so many tips, you know, the public mm -hmm. trying to help. I like, I like that. Yeah. Now, when it didn't appear that the police had anything to go on and they just, the, they felt like they weren't making enough headway, Jessica's family uh, was given a reference by a friend to reach out to Dennis McKenzie, who was a well-known psychic in the area. Dennis says that he vivid re vividly remembers the day when he was asked to help the investigation by the Wells family, and he knew almost immediately that something terrible had happened to the girls. This is a quote from him personally. I was really hoping my spirit guide would give me some good news, but as I got closer to the Soham, I had a heavy feeling of foreboding. As I got out of the car, I heard my guide saying in a very clipped, precise voice, they're dead, and I mm. felt sick inside. Wow. Right? Is that how that works? That's brutal. Apparently, for, for Dennis, it, it's a spirit guide. He went on to say, when I found myself in Kevin and Nicholas' presence, that was Jessica's mother and father, I asked them how direct they wanted me to be. They begged me to be straight with them. I had no option but to break the news. Back then, I had never, ever had to say anything so terrible to anyone. Words cannot describe my feelings. So he's, he is pretty broken up by this, but... Dennis went on to say that the girls were dead by 7.30 p.m. on the day they disappeared. He described a woman with a shrew-like face and brown hair and a man in his 30s with low intelligence who walked with a swagger. He described hmm. their accents as northern. That's, that's what he was telling the family. He also told the family that the girls had been transported in an old red car wrapped in something like carpet or bubble wrap. He described mm. the view from the house where they had been killed with a ditch outside the window and a tall building like a windmill with no sails in the distance, he said. All right. So after the Wells family heard this information, they called local authorities and let them know what they had learned from this psychic and police honed in their search, combined with this knowledge and tips from local residents and, and the public that had given them information. And they focused on one man in particular, which was Ian Huntley and his girlfriend, Maxine Carr. On August 17th, 13 days after the girls had disappeared at about 1230 p.m., 
a 48-year-old gamekeeper named Keith Pryor discovered the bodies of both girls laying side-by-side in an irrigation ditch near Suffolk, which Mm. was more than 10 miles east of Sonham. Soham. This irrigation ditch was right next to a grain silo that was on a farm owned by Ian Huntley. Mm. Wow. Yeah. So that was that was pretty sad. And the the car that uh, Dennis had seen belonged to his girlfriend, Maxine. Why do people hide bodies so close to or on their own property? Right. <laughs> I have I have no idea. I'm not saying you should murder anyone, but if you do, like come on, man. Well, like like with your last case, they couldn't find they couldn't go searching right away because you do have to have a warrant in order mm-hmm. to search someone's private property and in order to get a warrant, you do need to have sufficient evidence that would justify it. Mm-hmm. So, that can be why. I couldn't find anything on what what charges were brought against Ian's girlfriend. If she was charged with anything, I, I'm pretty sure she was because it was proven that she was an accomplice on this. Mm-hmm. She had been an assistant teacher at the girls' school. And so it was said that when the girls were walking back from the store, Ian was outside and recognized the girls himself because he was also within the school system and had somehow lured the girls into his house. And it was ruled that the cause of death for both girls was asphyxiation. So they they were suffocated to the death. So on September 29, 2005, Huntley was sentenced to 40 years in prison and would not be eligible for parole until 2042, by which time he would be 68 years old. And Dennis McKenzie, the psychic that helped, supposedly helped. Now, again, I'm skeptical on this one because there isn't that much on what his participation was other than the little snippet that I read that the family contacted him. And again, it's hard to find any research when it's not the police themselves, but Mm -hmm. more so just the family. But if you guys want to read about it, Dennis McKenzie did go on to write a book and it's called Being the Soham Psychic and it's on Amazon. So, (laughs) (laughs) Not that we're associated with him in any way because we are not. Right. We are not trying to plug his stuff, but, you know, if you're curious. If you like the researches. Mm -hmm. That is a really sad story. I actually read about that a little bit, and I read one that um, said the girls knew the the lady, the girlfriend, Mm -hmm. and that they knew where she lived, and that when they were walking back from the store, he was outside, and they called to him and said, hey, is Miss So-and-so home? Is Miss car home or whatever. Okay. And he lied to them and told them that she was and lured them into the house that way. He said, yeah, she's right inside. Come on. And when they went inside the house, then he got them. Gotcha. Okay. The internet is a fickle place these days, guys. So Mm -hmm. you, you try and go do some research. Yeah. (laughs) While juggling a full-time job and kids and how many pets do we have between us, Cindy? (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, Plus, Cindy's got all her ghosts around her and stuff. So, you know, we give you guys the best, the the most amount of details that we can find. We do what we can. We do what we can. To be the spooky. So my next story is very interesting. I chose it the minute I read what went down with this psychic lady. I was like, I have to talk about this story. All right. So this is the disappearance and murder of Melanie Uribe. She was 31 years old. She was a divorced single mom of one little boy, eight years old. And she was a nurse. And one day she was driving to her job at the hospital. And as she was waiting at a red light in her truck, two men forced themselves into her truck, took over the wheel and drove away with her, took her. Oh, good Lord. Witnesses saw this and reported it. Um, when she did not show up at work that day, cause they reported it, but they didn't know who she was. Maybe they didn't get her tag number. I'm not sure what happened, but they reported it, but they didn't, the cops didn't know it was her yet. So when she didn't show up to work, her employers said that was highly un- unusual. She mm-hmm. was very on time. She was very uh, reliable. So when she didn't show, they were concerned Um, they called around when they couldn't locate her, they reported her missing. And that was on December 15th, 1980. They found her truck the next day. It was burned out and it contained her nurse's uniform. The one she was wearing when she got like kidnapped, carjacked, whatever. So they found her clothing burned up in the truck. Psychic Etta Smith did not actually consider herself a psychic at the time. She would have weird occurrences happen to her and stuff, but she didn't, she didn't sell herself as a psychic. She didn't tell people she was, that was just like something that happened to her occasionally. Okay. She heard about Melanie's story on the radio, like the next day or two, you know, and the cops were searching Melanie's houses or Melanie's house and all that stuff. And Etta is the lady's name, Etta Smith. She was listening to that and she said for some reason she just knew that Melanie was not in her house and that it had nothing to do with her house. She just kept thinking she's not in the house. It's it's not the house. Etta had this gut feeling that Melanie was not in her house and that they were looking in the wrong places. So then she, as she's listening to this radio broadcast, she had a vision she describes it as kind of like a movie in her head. And she saw a canyon. She saw a curving road. And she saw some shrubs, hills in the background. And she saw a dirt path that was leading to something white. So she believed that the something white was the uniform. She believed that the something white was the body of Melanie. So she did not consider herself a psychic, as I said, but she was so drawn by this vision that she had that she left work early that day to go talk to the police. So Detective Lee Ryan found her to be credible only because she was kind of a known member of society. She had a good job. She was reputable. So he found her credible and he at least listened to her. She pinpointed the area that she thought it was because she was familiar with the canyon area in that part of um, town or whatever. 
So um, she told them the area that she thought the body might be in, but the police didn't like jump on it. They took the information from her, but they told her like, we'll get to it when we get to it. Or they didn't take her a hundred percent seriously. Of course. And would you, if you were a police officer? I, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I would. Some random person comes in and is like, I think this, you know, the person you're looking for is in this canyon. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and how many times do they probably get that happen Mm -hmm. when it is totally off and, you know. I've seen a vision. Yeah. I mean, we're not making fun of psychic people, but it does happen where people Attention seekers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've always got those in there somewhere. So, she got impatient. She knew the cops weren't really taking her too awful seriously. So she decided to go off and look for the body herself. Oh, she took some family members of hers with her. Okay. Went without the police. They drove around the canyon and she kept feeling what she described as trauma. She kept feeling trauma and she kept feeling Melanie's presence. So they kept driving through. She decided to drive down the canyon again. She found fresh tire tracks and she just knew that they were involved. So then further down from the tire tracks, just not too far from those, she stopped. She had them stop the car and she and her daughter got out. She brought her daughter with her. I They don't say how old her daughter is. I really hope that she was an, an adult. I I really hope that you're not taking a minor with you to go look for a body. (laughs) That's a whole new level of dark. Her and the daughter get out of the car and they're looking around. The daughter notices something funny looking in the brush. Okay. Etta starts walking towards it. I hope because she was like, no daughter, I'll look Mm -hmm. like you stay back. So Etta starts walking towards it and realizes as she gets closer that it is in fact a body, but it's a naked body with only white nursing shoes on. So the white thing that she saw in her vision was the shoes because that's the only thing the lady had left on her. And she says the landscape was exactly as it had been in her vision. So when she saw the body, body, she turned around and the view was everything that she'd already seen before. In her vision, the autopsy determined that Melanie had been stripped naked, raped, and beaten to death. Hmm. The next evening, so of course, when they find the body, they call the police and report it. They come and deal with it and all that. The very next evening, after they found the body, Etta was arrested. Well, she was taken in to custody. Mm-hmm. Um, the cops could not wrap their brains around how she knew where the body was and how she knew, you know, to even look there and like all that and what the body would be wearing. Cause she, when she told them where she thought the body was, she told them, I see something white. She's, she's still got white on or whatever. They basically did not believe her. They believed that she was not telling them all that she knew. So they took her into custody. They questioned her for a long time. Eventually they asked her to take a polygraph a lie detector test, and she agreed. Now, she passed the lie detector test, but they told her that she failed it. They lied to her. They told her that she failed it, 
to try and trip her up and get her to confess or whatever. I hate it when they do that. Yeah, but it didn't work. You know, she didn't falter from her story. But yeah, so they did that. They kept her, and the very next day after that, the day after they did the lie detector thing and all that, they did charge her with murder. They charged her with this lady's murder. Jeez. They, They believed that she didn't necessarily kill her, but they either thought either she knows the killers or somebody, she heard something and uh, doesn't want to turn someone in or she's protecting someone. And then their main thought was that her motivation for telling where the body was, was financial gain. They thought she wanted a reward or something. That next morning she was formally charged. And then shortly after her arrest, an informant of the police actually reported that he heard someone bragging about the murder, someone else, some, some man that he knew. So then they go to check that out. They bring that man in, question him. He finally confesses and he implicates two other men. So they have this man confessing and then these two other men, he says, helped him. So finally, Etta was released at that point. They dropped the charges and released her. That was on December 21st. 1980. It happened on December 15th. She was released from jail on the 21st. So the three men that were implicated in this whole thing, they, I didn't write their names down because one of them, I couldn't even get it because he's a minor. One was 17 years old, one was 20 and one was 21. Wow. So here's what actually happened to this lady. They had jumped into her truck And took it over, drove her into the canyon where they robbed her, raped her, and beat her to death. They were all convicted of the murder, and they are all still in prison. She she knew where the body was. The police weren't taking her seriously, so she just went, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go find it myself. She did find it herself. And then they arrested her for the murder because they thought, how did she know where this body was? Right. That's crazy. You always, like, on the flip side of that, what goes through your head that says, you know what, I'm going to go jump in someone's car and Mm -hmm. abduct them with my buddies? Where does that fall into good thinking? It doesn't. doesn't. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And her poor son. She was a single mom to an eight-year-old boy. Yeah. Like, gosh, you know, people are horrible sometimes, like terrible. Oh, by the way, that story, I found it on a website called Unsolved Mysteries. And it's the literal Unsolved Mysteries TV show that we all know and love. Oh, it was called Unsolved Mysteries Wiki. So I guess they have a website and the story was on that. So I think they might have covered it on the show. See, I found my information from so many different places, so it's all kind of just jumbled together. So there's not links for mine, but that's really <laughs> cool that it, it's on Unsolved Mysteries. He has the best narrator voice. Oh, my gosh. Boy, does he. But the problem is that every time I hear his voice, I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> something's gone terribly wrong. And then 12 minutes later, I'm fast asleep. So what's our last story of the night? All righty. In April of 1960, on a particular stormy night in Delvin, Illinois, 
on a dark and stormy night. Right, I know. (laughs) Greta Alexander was sleeping in the spare room of her home. Earlier that night, Greta was attempting to sleep in the master bedroom with her husband alongside her when the storm started to really pick up and scared one of Greta's younger daughters. Her daughter came into the room and crawled into bed with her parents in order to get comfort. Greta, who was pregnant with their fifth child Mm -hmm. at the time. That's too many kids, bro. (laughs) Right. Too many kids. Get off of her. (laughs) Decided she would get a more. You guys get a hobby. (laughs) She just, Greta decided that she would probably get a better night's sleep if she went in and slept in the spare bedroom. I don't blame her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Suddenly, Greta was awoken by the blinds flying off the window, being blown into the room that she was sleeping in, and the bed she was laying on was on fire. What in the absolute hell? Her husband came in to rescue her and took her and her four and their four children to the neighbor's house where they called the fire department. Turns out the house had been struck by lightning. Oh my gosh. And that's what, what caused the windows to blow in and mm. the fire. However, it would turn out to be a pretty good thing that the house was struck by lightning. Little is known about Mary Cousette's case. However, this is what we do know. So stay with me here. Okay. In April 1983, Mary Cousette from Alton, Illinois, disappeared after leaving her home with her boyfriend, Stanley Holiday Jr. That sounds like a murderer's name. Doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's like your first story was, a you know, the second. Yeah. Yeah. It's always those guys, right? <laughs> Find a better name for your kids. Otherwise, that's what happens. Mm. Holiday would be the focus of police investigations for Mary's disappearance. However, no hard evidence could be brought against him. After seven months of searching, police took an unusual route and they would reach out to none other than Greta Alexander, asking for her talents in helping search for Mary. Greta had been assisting police with missing persons cases since 1974, but, like your psychics, she never charged for her services. Greta believed that she had always had psychic abilities ever since she was a child, but that fateful night when her home was struck by lightning, that's what she attributed to Mm. awakening and intensifying her abilities, as she put it. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So, Cindy, if you get struck by lightning, <laughs> you're going to see gonna a lot more that. ghosts. <laughs> I don't need to see any more. I'm good. I'm seeing enough already. Good night. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so once, when the police reached out to Greta and asked if she'd help on this case, she said, of course. And she would go on to put a circle on a map where she said Mary's body would be found and gave the police 24 clues of what she Mm. had seen, quote unquote. Wow. Do you want to know what those 24 predictions were? Well, I mean, yeah. The area where the body is has already been searched. A man with funny looking boots walked right past the body during a previous search. The man with the boots had a dog. A man with a crippled hand will find the body. 
There are three roads. The initial S will play an important role. The initial B is around the victim's body. The body would not be found in the state where she was born. Grabner's farm would play a part. There would be tree cuttings near the body. The road splits near the body. The road near the body is bumpy. The body will be off the main highway. A leg or a foot on the body will be missing. The head Mm. will not be with the body. Mm -hmm. The body will be near a bridge. The body was dragged from the place where the victim was killed. Only part of the body will be showing. Cars stopping nearby will be important. The body will be down an embankment. A faded sign will be important. The body will be across a road down from the river. Mountains or hills are nearby. A church will play an important part. Jeez, I feel like this is a trivia game. Like, you know, like a some really twisted game of clue or something. I know, I know. Now, there are a lot of problems with these clues, okay? For example, once everything was solved... The name Grabner didn't correspond with any known people in that part of Illinois. Along this stre- along the stretch of highway where Mary's body was found, there are a number of churches, bridges, and road conjunctions, so that was all kind of just speculation, could be anywhere. And the other predictions are kind of just so vague, they could virtually be applied to any portion of the road any road right i mean oh it's just kind of all over the place they were very vague yeah very vague so again skeptic Hmm. (laughs) so because of these problems the searchers rather than spend their precious time trying to study her predictions um, they convened their search at a previously chosen location It turned out to be the right location, not because of Greta's help, but because of an apparent coincidence. Mm. So they say. Even though um, Greta had been no help in finding the body, searchers began reviewing Greta's predictions after the fact. Mm. Right. So afterwards, we're going to look into this. Oh, wow. Look, that match, that match, that match. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, guys, you could have looked beforehand, too. On October 29th, 1983, seven months after Mary's disappearance, policeman Steve True would find Mary Cazette's body near Peoria, Illinois. Officer Steve True had an injured finger and, so, the you know, disfigured mm-hmm. hand, and his first initial was S. Hmm. The bones of the victim were indeed scattered. There was a bridge off in the distance. There wasn't a church nearby, but there was a church camp about half a mile down the road. Hmm. There were piles of salt on the highway about a quarter of a mile away, which they took as matching the mountains or hills prediction. Uh, That's a stretch. (laughs) That's a stretch for me. (laughs) As usual, of course, the psychic's predictions were fit to match the situation after the search Mm -hmm. was over. 
However, she was still given credit. And besides those, many of Greta's predictions were completely wrong. (laughs) (laughs) There was, again, the Grabner's farm didn't relate in any way. There was no tree cuttings. The road nearby was not bumpy. The only cars that traveled nearby were on a highway and didn't stop there. And the only Mm. nearby signs were not faded. Most importantly, the circle that Greta drew on the map missed Cosette's body by a good distance. (laughs) Mm. So um, after looking further, it was about 20 miles away from where the body was found. Oh, wow. Yeah. So while following details are not clear, because I I couldn't find when they convicted him, when he was sentenced, anything like that. Um, But they did come to find out. They did arrest Stanley, Mary's boyfriend. Mm -hmm. He was arrested and he would confess to her murder. Ah. Right. However, Greta Alexander would continue to help police with missing person cases until she passed away in 1998 at the age of 66. Hmm. Well, I mean, I guess they took her seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, if you think about it, if you do believe in psychics and if you do believe that this kind of stuff is real, which I think I absolutely believe that there is some merit to... to mm-hmm particular cases Mm -hmm. okay yours with with the gal found in the canyon yeah Mm -hmm. that gal is legit she went straight to it man Mm -hmm. i mean this isn't an exact science right i mean looking at a map 20 miles off sure it's a big spance when you're talking in in matters of investigations and cops and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but like In the grand scheme of things, you were only 20 miles off. Yeah. The only, I I have one experience in my whole 43 years on this earth. I've only had one experience where I thought, OMG, did that, is that really, did that just happen to me? So I think I've mentioned it before on the show. I'm not sure. Tell our new listeners just in case. I will. So one time, so I am very sensitive to energies and stuff like that. I've seen ghosts my whole life. You guys already know all that jazz. Well, one day, a few years back, we'll say uh, probably like seven years ago, I was sitting in the living room. We were watching the news, but you know how the news is on and you're kind of listening, but you're not really like watching it actively. Mm -hmm. It was that situation. I was looking at my phone and the news was playing on the TV and a story came on and I looked up because it. Uh, caught my attention. So a story came on about a little boy, a little, I want to say he was three, three year old boy that went missing from somewhere near us, you know, and they were talking about him missing and what he was wearing and keep a lookout and all this stuff. And I looked up at the TV because it got my attention. And when I looked up, they had a big picture. The whole screen was a picture of him, of, of his um, face, like from the waist up. Uh, And the minute I looked at his picture, I felt like my whole lungs, esophagus, mouth, I felt full of water. I felt gurgling, a gurgling sensation and a choking sensation. Like I suddenly was submerged and couldn't breathe and water was in me, you know? Holy crap. And it was instant. 
And I felt that for several seconds and then it just went away. And I was just sitting there still on the couch thinking, what in the hell was that? So then do you know, three days later, they found that little boy floating in a pond near his apartment complex. Oh, I can't explain that. Honest to God, that really happened to me. I'm not exaggerating. That is legit. And then he was found like that. And I can't get over it. Like, was that a psychic moment for me? I don't know. I don't know how that works. I would say so. It was weird. It was the weirdest thing that's ever happened. And I've had some weird shit happen to me, you guys. And you have <laughs> not told that story before because I would have remembered that. Well, then there you go. It's a first. <laughs> was was it an accident? Did he like fall yeah, in? He, n- yeah, he wandered away from his apartment. He got out, I think. It was like the grandma's apartment or something. And he kind of wandered out. And fell in that pond and nobody, nobody noticed. And the first time they looked there, they didn't see him. Oh. And, and then three days later, he was found like face down on the edge of the pond right there. Yeah. And he was such a cute little boy. My goodness. So sad. That's intense though. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was instant. The minute I looked up and saw his face, I just was like, you know, like, ugh. It was so weird. So weird. So if that's what psychic people have to deal with all the time, I wouldn't want to do that. (laughs) Hashtag I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's terrible. So anyway. The legit, I will say though that the legit ones, they, I I really feel that they don't get to choose how they get their messages. And that's kind of how you know that they're legit is because they're like, this shit sucks, okay? Like, <laughs> I didn't ask for this, but I'm going to do the best that I can with what I got. Yeah. That's like Lorraine, right? Lorraine um, Warren. Mm-hmm. She she would be very uncomfortable sometimes when she would go to pl- haunted places and stuff. And she'd, like, have to leave the room and, you know, it would make her physically ill and stuff. So, I don't know. We need to do a whole episode about them sometime. Yeah. So that's what we've got for this one. Murders that were solved by psychics. You guys join the Facebook group. Join the chit chat about it. Let's let's talk about it. Let's hear your opinions. And if you just can't get enough of all of our silliness and want to hear extra stuff, you can definitely join our Patreon. You can do that. We would love to have you. It's a creepy weird little family that we have going on <laughs> even the lowest tier just 250 a month and that'll get you all of our bonus episodes that's two dollars and 50 cents just two dollars unless you just really want to give us 200 dollars or 250 dollars and then i will personally send you my venmo and um <laughs> i will not say no to that all <laughs> right <laughs> So we enjoy chatting with you guys, and until next time, we will spook you later. Ooh.